Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And we're live. Yes, finally. This is, I've been looking forward to this so much, so much. Let me introduce you to my guest straight away. We have so much to talk about. He is a longtime marketer. In fact, we bumped into each other early in our careers, and now he's exploded. Speaker, author, storyteller, really cool guy, and he is fluent in sarcasm. Warning. Uh, right now, he's making shows about the working world and the founder of Unthinkable Media, Jay Conzo. How are you, sir? Hey, uh, oh, I'm doing so good. I'm so good, Casey. <laughs> My sarcasm. Well, there it is. Right, right from the beginning, just letting people know this is what's about to go down. Um, so thank you so much for joining. This is that marketing leadership series. We're, we're, we're talking marketing strategy. And, and what I love about you is not only the sarcasm, but you crush BS and myths and bogus strategy. So what I want to do here is, this is heavy, but here you go. This is Thor's hammer. <laughs> so go ahead and take that. Am I worthy? You, oh, you're worthy. I, I believe so. So take that hammer and okay. smash for me. What are you seeing out there? I mean, you're speaking, you're going to all these marketing events, you're, you're seeing marketers, you're talking to them. What, what's just crazy and blowing your mind right now that we got to set the record straight on? I find that there's this tendency, not, it's not a marketing thing because the more I speak to all groups, sales, uh, public education, you name it, it's endemic to just people in the workplace. Okay. But there's a tendency to look at the superficial level, the precedent, the conventional wisdom, the trend, and not dig deeper to first principles. And in other words, what's going on with humans. And it, I find that that is more timeless. And that's also a little bit more powerful to understand because you can build up your thinking from there. So this, right. this thing I'd like to smash is let's smash through the layers of conventional wisdom and get to the first principle underneath. I like it. I think in marketing, we obsess over... The, the industry, and by industry, I mean our, our people, our reaction to this fundamental shift we're living through, and rarely do we address the fundamental shift. So the reactions are things called content marketing and social media and influencer marketing and ABM. These are the reactions to the fundamental shift. The shift itself goes like this. It used to be the case that marketers were in the business of acquiring people's attention. Okay. So your job was to run campaigns. They had a start and an end date. You could jump out in front of people on the very few channels that existed and they couldn't yeah. do anything about it because they didn't have as many options as today, nor the right. technology that they had accessible. So your, your job was to basically jump in front of people enough times and deliver the right message at the right time. Right. Right. Yeah. People that you were for them. Okay. You were in the business of acquiring attention. True. Today, that is no longer the case with the infinite amount of choice people have. I mean, it's the same refrain we keep hearing to describe any disruption. It's like the world has changed, right? You have technology, you have mobile, you have all these different choices. You have the instant ability to navigate to something you want to get around something you don't want. And that's not even bringing up technology that exists solely to remove advertisers from people's worlds, right? So True. the deck is stacked against the sole goal, the mandate of acquiring attention it has to be about now holding it. Okay, yeah. Jobs. Our jobs are not to grab people's attention. Our jobs are to, once we grab it, hold it. That's the harder part, but it's also the thing that buoys everything else. Trust, loyalty, driving revenue, 
building a subscription, uh, having a passionate audience mm -hmm. that actually refers new people to you. So if you can focus on grabbing attention, two great things happen to your organization if you're on the marketing team. Number one is the lifetime value of an individual in your audience goes up. They spend time with you. They understand you. They see the world your way. They take more actions on your behalf. They buy, they come back and buy again, or that you upgrade them if you're a B2B company. Right. The LTV, the lifetime value of an individual goes up. And the customer acquisition cost goes down. Nice. Because now you're working with an audience that refers new business, word of mouth. And historically, uh, that wasn't how we operated. We didn't operate with a compounding value in mind, which, by the way, is how software companies operate. They really care about LTV and CAC and increasing one and decreasing the other. Um, historically, marketers didn't think about that. We basically act like a bunch of panicked people digging <laughs> holes in dry sand. Right? We can't stop trying and can't stop pushing and can't stop shipping hollow average work. And I don't have time to do that. And but my boss this and my near term metric that it's like digging a hole in dry sand. As soon as we stop, the walls cave in on us. Nothing we do sticks. But marketing is not about the people who arrive. It's about the people who stay. Right. So we can't right. focus all our attention on grabbing attention. The new mandate is to hold it. Now, chicken in the egg, though, I mean, don't you, you still have to get their attention in the first place. So isn't that just still as hard? Well, now we can focus on the people who are most likely to pay attention to us up okay. front, right? The okay. easiest possible people to convince, hey, this is actually for me. I'll give you an example that's near and dear to my heart because I'm, I'm living through this right now. So historically, historically, the last three years. In the last three years. Historically. Yeah. <laughs> I've been building a business based on marketers who make shows. So I advise on documentaries and podcasts and video series, and I host and produce them for a handful of clients per year. Cool. And it's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. Love it. Right. And what I've realized is a show is the ultimate vehicle to hold attention. Mm. It's the best vehicle because it's expressly built to do that. And that's why you're seeing a lot more companies from Slack and Dell and GE all the way down to, tiny startups create a lot more shows. Um, but educating the market is a problem because I'm a little bit ahead of it. I'm like a year too soon, right? So Agreed. if I want to get this business really off the ground in a flywheel and not have to brute force every new deal, I need to start educating the market. Okay. Well, to get people to pay attention, I only need to go to the clients I'm already working with and be like, Hey, what questions do you have? or the friends I have that host podcasts at SaaS companies and say, right. what are you struggling with with your podcast? Casey, what sucks about doing this project, right? right. I'm gonna answer those questions. I'm gonna find people good at that. I'm gonna recommend technology. I'm gonna write things, stories, advice. You know, I'm gonna teach and inspire the true believers and the true believers will then get me the next group who become the next true believers, right? So it's a lot easier if you don't have to grab attention from people that aren't ready to hear from you. If all you do is focus on the minimal viable audience to use the Seth Godin parlance, then use that audience because they're sticking around and love you and deepen their relationship with you to win the new audience. Wow, right. So it, 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 it feeds itself. You're focusing on the people that want to hear the message. It, it almost it refines that target instead of trying to interrupt everyone and interrupt people who don't want to pay attention. It, I loved your analogy about digging in the sand. Like there's no water here. Right. You keep, you keep digging. It's almost like that's what we do in marketing. We try to get that, 
I need to deliver 4,000 leads by Friday or, or else, you know, like, let me just, let me just dig a little deeper. Maybe I'll find them down here. And it's just, no, no one's there. That's I'm fascinated it. by a concept that I call the next now, but I'm fascinated by this idea that we don't ever think about the next now. We just think about now. It's like, well, I have to get results right now. I have to drive the lead right now. I need right. to convert the business right now but you eventually get to the next now and it's just as hard and you're starting from scratch, right? What if something you did today actually set up compounding returns so that tomorrow you're building on top of that, right? It's really easy uh, to see an analogy here in blogging. If you have a couple of articles that continually get shared and continually rank on search and continually get audience, then the new things you're writing add on top of that uh, from an, an existing base, right? So you're compounding your results. Marketers need to think like that across the board. And, and again, I, I take my page from SaaS and software because that's where I came from. Software companies think about this a lot. There's a payout period. When you acquire a customer for X dollars, they pay you Y dollars a month. So it's going to take you Z months to be profitable on that customer acquisition in this mm. one instance, right? And they think about this compounding benefit of, well, if enough customers come and stay, I can manage that machine, you know, right. like dollars in, dollars out. And that referral engine starts because they're around for so long that when someone says, hey, do you have a good marketing automation tool, uh, you know, Casey, you're like, right. yeah, use this tool because yeah. I'm using it. I've been using it for months, right? So the brass tacks, the actual practicality underneath this sort of pithy idea of holding attention it is you want a higher value out of your existing audience and a lower dollar amount that it requires to get the next group to come your way, right? Every boss, every team manager, every individual in marketing wants that higher LTV, lower CAC, but we're not thinking in those terms. We're just digging holes in dry sand, acquire, 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 acquire. You know, it's almost that common business knowledge that it's way, way, you know, insert language, cheaper, better, all the things to grow existing business from the people who've already given you money, signed contracts with you, you're already approved vendor, all that kind of goodness, then going out and acquiring someone brand new. Yep. Well, humans have this thing called the complexity bias, which is not a pithy thing I came up with. It's a lot of studies yeah, about us. it. Right. Complexity bias is that we, we think more highly of or even favor and draw our attention towards things that seem complex. So the consultant who comes in and is oh, like, geez. oh, you're trying to uh, create a podcast. Well, let me tell you, a podcast is so hard and blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, it's, it's why a lot of consultants early on in content marketing's evolution held back and didn't want to give away their knowledge because they're like, well, I'm going to give away things that make it easier for them. And I want it to be really hard for them. So they hire me, which is not at all what's going on. Um, right. So complexity bias is this idea that we put more trust, not trust, that's the wrong word. We believe that the smarter thing, the more worthy thing, you know, is the more complex thing because oh, we don't understand it, right? right. And so it's like a, a diminishing of our own power to think like that, but, but most humans do. Um, and so when you say it's just like the old adage that keeping a customer is cheaper than acquiring a new one, we've all known that phrase for years, right? I don't know yeah. where the hell I learned it, but I certainly yeah. know I've heard it we all know on, right it's <laughs> yeah. like the it's like the marketing equivalent of when we were kids every kid knew that if your video game wasn't working take the cartridge out and blow in the cartridge blow in the cartridge everyone yeah. knew that there was no internet back then right so no one taught knew, us right it's just yeah, knowledge that's right. it. everybody knew 
from the jump that if everyone knows that it's a lot cheaper and easier to keep existing customers, right. back up a step, keep people who are already subscribed or already paying attention to your audience or to your content in your audience. It's cheaper, it's better. Um, but we don't execute on that, right? So, right? so I love when I talk about this concept, people are like, yeah, but isn't that something we've been saying for years? A hundred percent. But guess what we're not doing? Executing on it. Right, at all. At yeah. all. Yeah, the, you know, the complexity bias, I've been victim to that a couple of times. I once, you know, back in the day when we first met around that time, I, I left one company to go join another one and they had just gotten rid of a much better marketing automation platform in, in exchange for a much worse one. But this worse one, it had multiple databases and it had all these columns and you could do a, a SQL query on it. And it's like, uh, okay. Um, but by the way, you can't use all those databases. Only one syncs with your CRM. But anyways, you have multiple databases. So this person made the call to switch over because it just seemed so complicated and powerful. And it was such a mistake. Um, it's frustrating. You know, it's not even the grass is greener. The grass is more complicated. So I must right. go check it out. And it's, it, there's a fear. I think one of the reasons that we're not focused on holding attention is that there's a fear that if we just served the people who already believe what we believe, the people who are already interested in our topic, the people who already yeah. trust us and like us, if we focus all our time and attention on them, that we won't actually benefit, that there will be no growth. And on, I think that's a really sad state of affairs. It's really, uh, it's a misunderstanding. I get the fear though, right? I get it. I get it too. But uh, I don't think there's ever been a company in the history of companies that grows purely by focusing on acquisition and, and has a sturdy foundation. I think of uh, the Groupon copycats oh, who are yeah. more or less obsessed with pure acquisition. They flyers under your door, uh, tons of ads on the subway, tons of... Sure. Uh, direct mail, and they all crumbled. They had no real fundamental business. So they became kind of like a, a venture arbitrage machine where the whole goal was to show big top line growth right. and raise the next round. And then right. keep doing that. Keep, and eventually that becomes unsustainable because you're growing something that has no foundation. You're building a business back to the analogy on sand. Yeah, it's like a food.com or a pets.com sure. and spend money on the ads and then just. Right you got nothing behind it. History is littered with examples of companies that imploded or teams or careers that flamed out because all they cared about was grabbing you mm -hmm. instead of keeping you, serving you. Right. And here's the hard truth. And the reason I'm so excited about why brands are making shows and thinking about holding attention. Yeah. The hardest thing for a marketer, especially in the digital age, there's no system to game. You, there's no there's no algorithm that you have to trick and stay ahead of. There's no guru on a walk and talk YouTube or a LinkedIn video, like walking to work, being like, I have this random thought and here's my thought. And, you know, it's, there's nobody that's going to give you a secret here. The only <laughs> way to be good at holding attention is to create something worthy of significant time. Right. That's it. Right. But if you can find a way to do that, and oh, by the way, it's not going to be out there. It's going to be by focusing on your team and your customers now you're unstoppable. You're unassailable because you're doing things that others can't just cut a check for. They can't just acquire this audience away from you because there's that trust built up. Mm. So we talk about wanting this stuff, but I don't think we're willing to make that shift. So right. that's what I'm smashing today. This idea that our jobs as marketers are to grab attention is from a bygone sort of mad men era. Today's marketer and today's business is in the business of holding attention.
holding attention. Man, that that is smashed. It's just it's it's like, but now that you smashed it, I think the the dam is now all the water's rushing out because it just you know, I guess from there, we, you know, it's almost like what is next? The dam is smashed. I mean, I think we've all experienced really shitty landing pages that somehow tricked us into this one guy. It was like marketing automation plus AI. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually confused on that. Let me go get this white paper. Here's my information. I mean, I know what's happening because I set these things up and the white paper was absolute rubbish. It was so bad. I learned nothing. And then eventually they called me. Of course they did. And I was like, I don't want to talk to you. Your white paper was garbage. You know, this was horrible. They, I mean, they got my, they got me, they got my attention. But as soon as they did, they just about lost it instantaneously. And now I don't trust them anymore. Well, that's an example. That's not a, that's an example of a, a marketer who thinks that they're a content marketer, but they're actually an advertiser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The advertisement of the landing page was what they actually cared about. In other yeah. words, was it a good enough landing page to convince you to opt in? Was it a, a promise that you wanted to see fulfilled? All they cared about was, does the promise sound great? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The answer was yes, as measured by email opt-ins. The marketer's job was done in their minds right. or the boss's you know, permission and budget and time that they yep. granted that marketer, right? Um, but a real content marketer, and I would just even remove the word content, a great marketer today would, would think holistically. Well, if I get those emails in, then someone, me, automation, a sales rep, a colleague on the marketing team is going to then contact this individual who feels we actually broke this promise, right? Right. If you start stripping away things like landing page and conversion rate optimization and, and yeah. KPIs and the jargon, that's what we're doing. We're promising one thing and we're failing to deliver. Yeah, and so like you, there's, there's only two possibilities of what, that, what, what caused that. Either you didn't ever care about delivering, you only cared about promising, or you were outright lying to them. Right. Right. Or I'm so just really picky about priorities. my white papers. <laughs> What's that? Or I'm just really picky about my white papers. But either way, it was not a delivered promise. You and everybody else, especially <laughs> if you're marketing to a B2B buyer. Yeah. That's those days should never have existed. Right. But they are also gone. Right. So I I keep hearing shows is the answer. Talk to me about this. Well, I don't think there's any one answer. I think okay. like whenever I write, whenever I speak, it's always, there's always a think for yourself caveat here. A think for yourself clause. Like it's just like things work differently. Your mileage may vary. Everybody should figure out the best approach for them, not the best practice. Um, and so if I were to say to a group of marketers, everybody should make shows, we're back at square one. We're in the same boat as we are now, right? Like so I don't think- shiny thing and then we all go after right. it. It's not a panacea. But for a certain group of people who think a certain way, I think you can get to the point where you say, actually, we need to make a show um, because a show is episodic and serialized. A show mm -hmm. is expressly built to hold attention, even down to the minutia of, you know, a call to action to subscribe on a blog versus a show uh, on a blog. It's get more knowledge like this on a show. It's see what happens next or get the next episode. It's logical and it makes total sense to the audience why they should come along for the journey because a show is a journey. I think the best shows are positioned as a journey. Either it's the story that's unfolding or we're exploring this topic and it keeps getting deeper or we thought it was this in this episode, right. but that leads to these new questions. We're exploring that next time, hmm. which is a, a tactical issue in a lot of shows is they don't hint at the, the continuity. Um, does does that tie in? 
you just quick question does that tie in tell me it almost could be nurturing or does that violate it if you're repeating the same seven shows for people based on their i mean buyer journey show journey can you just map those together yeah i would or say to somebody well let's take an easy example if you're uh hosting a like you are a b2b show yeah, about sure. marketing um, there's one way to do it, which is uh, popcorn style, which is, uh, I'm going to, it's everybody that somewhat relates to this topic when I can get them. Yeah. And what we explore is going to be based on that guest. So really it's a wholly guest driven show and you sort yep. of pop around based on when you can schedule them. Right. But it's really easy to take one extra step and say, well, every single time I talk to somebody, or at least when I air it, even if I'm only sorting through the last five interviews I did last week or last month, I'm going to order that in such a way that in this episode, we address this topic. Well, that leads to these questions. Or now we have to know this new thing or whatever. Uh, we talked about landing page optimization in this episode. Next episode, it's like, well, what do you put behind the landing page, right? What, what are you advertising on the landing page? What's the content part? We're talking to this content marketer next week. So right. structuring it in such a way that it goes deeper allows two things to happen. Number one is you can use it as evergreen consistent flow. Like you said, a nurture track Yeah, where you can say when somebody opts in or you survey them or just talk to them, hey, how much do you know about this? If it's a show about making podcasts, very meta show about shows, yeah, sure. uh, the show show. If you're making the show show, then maybe you ask somebody, well, have, do you have a podcast? How long have you been running it? Or what topic do you care about? Do you care about creative? Do you, do you care about hosting skills? Do you care about marketing or measurement? And right. then you put them on the right track where it's A to B to C to D in the flow, right? That's one thing that unfolds. You have to know something about the audience first. Okay. The second is it just gets people to keep going, mm. right? Even if they drop into the middle of it, they're like, oh, this is a journey. It's unfolding. Right. And maybe you called back to last week or maybe just implied in their mind. They're like, oh, something happened last week that I missed. So I better go back and binge and I also better subscribe to get the next one. Yeah. So I don't think it has to always be prescriptive, but it has to be framed as we're exploring something. The well goes ever deeper. Come along. Right. Right. I mean, I think I, I joined into watching the office, you know, season, whatever. I'm not, sure. not an early adopter of TV shows. So you hear about it. You're like, oh, I'll check it out. You see something on TV and you're like, oh man. And then the other day, the missus and I went back to episode one, one, you know, and then we're like, let's watch it all the way through. But right. We didn't catch it the first time that way. Right. And, and, and the problem always comes back to, um, the, well, the first level is the shift between grabbing and holding. Yeah. Get on board with that. The second is, okay, we're making this show, but we must need a budget like NPR or a staff like NPR. And it's like, hold on. No, there's a lot of green space to explore, uh, Greenfield, in between an NPR-like show and a talking head show with zero editing. Right. So many possibilities in between. So if you can get past that, that hurdle, you continue in the right direction. And the third hurdle is, yeah, but for me to say at the end of my show as the host or the narrator, well, that leads me to think about these five things or this one question. And next time, like, it's just, you have to be more present and mindful to mm -hmm. think like that. You can't switch wow. off your brain, rattle off a bunch of questions to a guest and end by saying, basically, okay, that's what we got. Thanks for coming. Great talking to you. By the way, subscribe and rate. Like you have to be awesome. mindful for how you construct the ending. Yeah. So that's like, it's a calories thing. It's a care for craft thing. It's a creativity thing. It's not a budget thing. It's not a technology thing. That's cool. Now you got me all meta nervous about my own ending. I don't, oh, I don't ask for likes and followers. I, 
I am quickly becoming, because now I'm out there in the market talking about marketers making shows and I'm yeah. quickly becoming a terrible interview. Because <laughs> I talk about making better shows and I'm on a lot of shows and they're like, well, I'd like to do that too, but crap, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Right. So maybe I should just position it as like, have me on your show. We'll do a live audit. Oh no, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the couple things that, that really resonated with me on that too. Um, even doing this was like, and I'm not exactly a planner. So we just sort of got into it and seeing what's happening. But uh, all of last year, um, each month was a theme based around the strategy we were, we were presenting our clients on our, we had like a roadmap called the CSI. And so yeah. we're like, here are the 10 steps to that. And each one of them corresponds to a month. It's like chock full of like the best expert in one was landing pages and testing and one was content marketing. And so, yeah, some order to the chaos makes sense, but I really like yeah. what you're talking about in terms of kind of stringing the episodes, to the next one to the next one. I think, I think for ours, it's very much been um, now that we're done that CSI part, it's been sort of this marketing leadership series and then, you're just awesome. So we just sort of like, let's just talk and have a good time. Um, and so maybe not as cohesive as, um, you know, that ending that ties into, well, Jay got me thinking about this. And so I'm going to go seek out the VP of Twitter and, you know. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be overt. Like that's just the obvious and okay. easy way to think about sure. it. But you can sure, say, sure. you know, so here's an example from my world. So my podcast, Unthinkable. Yeah. Um, I used it for the first two years to just tell stories I thought were interesting. Right. And then it started to evolve like what we were talking about. Like, what is this about and who is it for? It started as people in content marketing that care about the content side, the creators. Right. Then it became, well, there's a lot more people listening than just marketers. And I started talking to the listeners and it was like, and I started hearing from them inbound. And I was like, okay, so what's the through line? Oh, it's, it's craft driven creators. Hmm. So wow. they care about the craft. They do things for their own sake and oh, by the way, that gets a better business result. They're right. not like, I don't care how we get there as long as we get there faster. So I'll just copy, right? They're not like right. that. Then I kept talking. It's like, it just became one thing after That's another. Cool. It evolved. For it me. evolved. And the thing that was most useful is I scheduled for, for a year, every month I did five to six one-on-one -on -one video calls mm -hmm. unrecorded with listeners. And I would ask them uh, for 15 minutes, I'd ask them questions. And then the next one I would evolve what I asked yeah. Because I was learning. Um, so these were like customer development calls in software product parlance. Yeah, totally. And, right. So for 15 minutes, I would do customer development. And the last 15 minutes, I would say, whatever you want to talk about, it's fair game. Like I'm here to add value back because I just got so much value. And honestly, those cool. were the most, every month it was the same story in my head. It was like, I don't have time to do this. And at the end of every month, I was like, I am so glad I did that. Right. right. I, I evolved from saying things a certain way to another way to all the way up to like the stories and concept. So this year I'm exploring like how to create consistently. People mm. often look at stunts and one-off gimmicks as a way yeah. to differentiate. And I think if you look under the hood, it's about consistent creativity. Agreed. How, how does that work? Right. Thinking about the, the next now, right. Right. Holding attention. Well, now you're thinking about consistent delivery of value, not just one off. So how do you do that? And my thesis is you have to master the art of reinvention because consistently great work consistently changes. It's always refreshing. It's always ah, evolving, right? Right. So who has reinvented themselves and what can we learn? That's what we're exploring this year. And, and I mentioned that a lot, but I never end the episodes by saying, and now I'm thinking about this question that's next week. But I do make clear with the listener that I have some journey and that they're on it so that hopefully they keep going with us. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah. I, I see how 
even even if you are doing a show or doing shows, that sneaky getting versus holding can kind of creep into there. It's like, oh, do a show, just get their attention. But yeah. then you, you got it's all about holding it now. So this one-off stunt doesn't work. The one-off um, YouTube video, to tr- you know, that whole like, let's go viral with one video. That was that old mentality of just get their attention and then do what with it, you know? Um, yeah. So consistent show makes total sense um do you how do you approach do you have like a simple starting point for people on how they you know get started well i think the first thing if you boil down the system and i'm still working through it i mean the unthinkable truly is an exploration where i'm like i want to know how the art of reinvention happens so we can get good at it but i don't actually have all the answers but here's what i look well that's the goal it's yeah and that's what i did with my first two years of the show. And so right. I'm three now of the show. Uh, it launched in March of 2016. And so it's like, now if I want to write a book someday, I'll have, I'll have aerated and explored all the material, right? Yeah. And I can beef it up and make it like, this is the gift to the people that came along for the ride, right? right. It's like, here's the final, like if you hike a mountain and the emotional feeling and the photo is the payout, like that's, I want the mountain peak to be the book. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, so you asked me how this happens. So how do we consistently create, right? How, right. Or, or create consistently well. Um, yeah. And I mentioned my thesis is you have to keep refreshing the work. You have to keep reinventing. I don't think that's about pulling stunts. I don't think that's treating creativity like it's a stunt double that you call in for the real work. I think it is the real work. Um, in other words, it has to happen in small, consistent ways. Mm. So the way I like to sum it up so far, and again, I'm continuing to explore this and challenge my own assumptions, but... Yeah. I think it's about find the framework, break the framework. Hmm. And, we're, and it's never been easier to find the framework, right? That's what all these ideas swirling around your company and best practices and conventional wisdom and how-tos and all the way up to like, nobody's written about how, there's a couple exceptions coming out now after he's been gone for a while, but Anthony Bourdain, hmm. uh, nobody really wrote about like, here's the framework for his episodes. Because I think largely he didn't continually use one. But right. early on, you could see some semblance of consistency. And then he really experimented a lot with his production team, um, 0.0. And so I, early in my show's history, I sat down and wrote what I thought was his framework. I watched an episode. I wrote down the blocks huh. and, and the beats. I was like, okay, cold open. That's the block. Purpose. What was the purpose of a cold open? Intrigue the listener, intrigue the viewer in his case. Uh, set the stakes. and basically let them know that they want to keep watching, right? Mm -hmm. What do we normally do? Not that. We start with like really boring details in our shows. We basically front load the worst part. He would intrigue you. Like any show, Breaking Bad used to have the best cold opens on TV. Game of Thrones, every so often, they have a cold open where it's a moment of drama or intrigue. It could be as simple as asking a big question that you know is burning on the audience's mind. Right. And then you sit, that's what we're exploring, right? Not we have a great show for you because why else would you, of course you do. You're going to try it out a terrible yes. show and then admit it. No. Right. So uh, I would, I would document Bourdain's show. Um, and I call that exercise performing an extraction. Hmm. So it's like extract the framework from something you admire. But then the key is like into these blocks and beats, you're pouring more of who you are and who your team is and your mission and your brand. And you know, you are not them. So you're borrowing and stealing from your heroes but the key is you need to stand on the shoulders of those giants whereas most of us lean against them like a crutch Mm. 
And so when you find the framework, you then have to break the framework. So how do you reinvent? Finding the framework is super easy. Breaking the framework is not. It's risky. And I do have some ideas I'm happy to start sharing and, and floating with you about how to break the framework, but it's incredibly difficult. And that's why I'm telling stories all the time on my show to figure that out. It's like, how did these people actually reinvent? Uh, and I, to me, so far, I have like two or three concepts under that. So question comes to mind then on reinvention, because even, even as I sort of pseudo think about things I could add or not to even this podcast, or even if I'm comfortable doing that, I think about, you know, these folks that did reinvent themselves, you know, how often was it forced on them versus they like chose to do it? Or was it like them responding to like, if I don't do this, I'm dying. So I got yeah. to, or, you know what, things are fine, but let me just go ahead and get really uncomfortable. Even though I've just gotten comfortable, let me get super uncomfortable and try this again. Well, the, the key is that we think consistency looks linear, right? It looks mm -hmm. like we tried a bunch of stuff and now we found the arrow we're following forever, apparently. But actually, if you look at what happens to things that persist, like a show is an easy example because it's exotic yeah. and seasonal, um, you experience something called emotional decay. So emotional decay is, is that you have that spike of what I call nirvana. It's like, everybody loves us. This is great. It's going so great. We've done it, right? We found the thing that we're going to put on repeat right onto the next problem. And now over time you experience a drop off. So you get this great spike for those watching the video. I'm way up here. And then it starts to drop off and you're like, okay, they don't love us, but we're still getting really good results. Like look at the number here. It's really good. So we still have the thing, right? We think it's working. The podcast is killing it or that kind of episode. Right. Is great. Right. And then over time it actually stagnates. So you move from like nirvana to this drop off, diminishing returns over time. And then it, it just straight out stagnates. And at that point, usually we're in automation mode. We're like, it's good enough and it's sufficient enough that we don't want to touch it because there's a risk factor, right? right. If you change anything, it could go straight down. So we're not going to touch it. But inevitably over time, you're playing a very dangerous game because you're betting that this will persist longer than you need it to. So right. that you have the mental space eventually while it's persisting in a stagnant, okay way to try to find the next moment of nirvana. But that rarely happens. Instead, what happens is it craps out, right? And we're like panicking because it's the end of the quarter and we haven't hit our quota or it's the end of the year and the revenue is not there. Whatever it is, we like, we then pull a stunt. We then look for the guru or the trend to glom onto. We like throw our intuition to the wind and we just go running like chickens with our heads cut off to try and get back up to that moment of excellence, right? Mm. Why? Because we stayed the same too long and we stagnated and eventually crapped out. And now we're acting after it's too late. Right. So far better in that approach. If you look at that reality, far better is to use signal of stagnation to reinvent something then mm instead of after it's too late. And this is a little bonkers for some people to get on board with, but what I've realized from all these stories I've been telling, the people who persist over time and do really, really well yeah. over time, they change the work. They change what's working while it's still working. Right. And I think you can do that in a, in a, in a palatable way. Instead of like reinventing everything and being like, well, this is working, throw it out. Right. Uh, it's about finding two 
aspects of whatever it is we're talking about. Let's keep going with the podcast analogy. Um, something called an anchor and then a tether. Hmm. So when you break the framework, you need to decide what is non-negotiable and what's up for debate. Not what are we changing, but what's up for discussion. So what's non-negotiable at a brand tends to be things like if you're running the podcast for the brand, the name of the company, right? That's it. <laughs> yeah, right. But more yeah. importantly is the mission of the brand, right? The goals that your boss has set upon your team or your, you've put on yourself or what you've given to your team. Sure. Uh, there's certain non-negotiables, certain anchors, which by the way, provide really useful constraints because they prevent chaos. They let you know you got to work in this frame in this terrain in this section of this wide ocean you're not going to drown by the way because we're anchored here right right and a tether is okay so given that anchor we can experiment in little ways all around it so let me give you an example a lot of writers will come to me and say they really want to write better more creative stories on their blog but their boss wants them to write how-to tips and tricks yeah, boring stuff yep they're trying to rip up the anchor and sail in a completely different direction. Oh yeah. And what I'm saying is, okay, if you're anchored to, I have to write SEO friendly, practical advice, blog posts, right. And you want to create more stories. Well, what kind of story could you, you might not be able to reinvent the entire article, but you could reinvent your openings, right? right? You're tethered to that main idea of this is the construct of an article, but you have a little wiggle room all the way around that anchor on that tether. One of which is how do you open that article uh, or how do you conclude it? Or what kind of little embedded video do you put in? There's a lot of little room, little spots, little pockets to experiment. So that's, just, this is great for me, by the way, Casey, because this is yeah. as far as I've gotten in this exploration. I think, no, it's cool. I, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. Find those anchors first, right? That's the framework. And then you find the way to break the framework, not by up, uprooting all the anchors, but by tethering to them and actually exploring little yeah. spaces around them. I mean, that advice works for, I mean, marketing is full of challenges. Not only the boss that doesn't want you to write sure. content, but you know, nobody cares about nurturing or, you know, here's the right way to do marketing. No one cares. I still have to deliver 10,000 emails by you know Thursday. And okay, well, you got anchors, but where's the tether? I mean, I love that because it's just like, where's your wiggle room? Fight, fight your small battles, win a little bit of space here and there. Um, right. But you, to go back to the reinvention thing, um, you know, when you were talking about that, I'm sure you've bumped into drift in a lot of the events you've been to and um, they had a conference uh, just last year in Boston. I don't know if you had a chance to hear about that or go to it. Um, they should have you speak at it next year. <laughs> what up, Dave? Let's go, guys. Let's book this guy. So um, great speakers all over the place. And they had uh, Shaka Pilgrim. I don't know if you've heard of her. No. I hadn't heard either. And so it's one of those things where I'm sitting in the front row and Drift is cool because they just throw down all sorts of weird speakers that are different and outside the box. Not your, your standard B2B, um, you know, here's your B2B speaker, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, they, um, she was actually the, let me look it up here. She was like the president. She did basically marketing for Rock Nation, Def Jam, Atlanta Records. Um, but I was like, like I'm, I don't do rap. Like, what could I possibly learn from her, right? And so this mental thing was going on in my head. And I'm like, what am I going to learn from her? Um, and I'm, I'm glad I sat in my chair. I was literally front row and center because I got there so early. So I'm like, I'm just going to stay and open my head. And maybe, maybe something will just come in here. 
and and sure enough she she gets up there and they're asking her questions and one thing she says is that like she would see um you should probably talk to her on your podcast she, she would see rappers come and go and some would persist and stay and crush and continue to do it over and over again others wouldn't and one of the biggest things they would they weren't reinventing themselves yeah like someone would come in with a sound they do it and they do it. The decay would happen and they would just, they, they had nothing left. Like, like a one hit wonder lightning bolt struck and they have one album and it kills it, but then they're soon washed away. But other guys would experiment. Gals would experiment with these different sounds and just keep pushing and trying. And they would stay, you know, season after season because they did this. And then she ended with this crazy quote. I don't know if I'm misquoting her, but this is what I heard. I heard, look, you got to take off that high school football varsity jacket take off the you know the awards and rewards of the past put that down pick up your spear and put on your bear armor and go leave the cave and like conquer something else that's what i don't know if she actually said that but like shaka that's what i heard and i was like hell yeah but you know drop the jacket grab your spear and your bear armor i don't even know what that is but it sounds awesome and go get that next one and it's like how often have i thought of like when you have those successes in the past you're like you know, whether it was football or in business or somewhere, you just kind of want to hang out in the cave and talk about your old victories. I, I, it's a good feeling, right? You found the yeah. moment. You want to cling to the moment. And don't get me wrong, that can be a teachable moment. It can be just something you reminisce about. I actually think that we were sold the lie um, when we entered our careers. I think the education system is a big reason why, because we came out of a system, most knowledge workers came out of a system built on knowing the answer. <laughs> and teaching to the test, which was standardized and sitting in rows and doing what you're told. But that's not the working world whatsoever, right? So when you see somebody out you, and you're like, well, I'm at this, this was me at 25. I was like, I'm more talented as a writer than that person. I know I am. Right. Why did they have that job? Or why do they have that many readers? Because I was trying to do what I was told. I was sitting there waiting for someone to say, Jay, you're great, you're talented, here's a promotion. Or, hey, we're this company you've heard of, which is more famous than the company you're now at, we will hire you, right? Or the boss saying, you're so great, Jay, go be our public face. And right. that other person went after it, right? So I was doing what I was told. I was sitting in a row because I was a good student and I really was. And I thought that's how you got ahead in life. And it is for some people in some professions. It is profoundly not that way in marketing and most right. knowledge-based jobs, especially in the business world. My wife is a PhD in psychology. Her yes. world has a lot more uh, rigidity to it. I, I, sure. I made the fluid motion with my hands, but yes. I was try, I, I'm so used to just fluid. No, she's more rigid in her career path because that's how that system works. And I would argue there's room for reinvention on the margins there too. Agree. It's just that they, that's not how they think because it's right. eight years of it being beaten into your, your brain as a PhD. But anyways, that aside, I think what you're saying about take off the varsity jacket. Yeah. It's this willingness to say, I, well, this is actually, I think Anthony Bourdain's tattoo, which I love. I'd never okay. get a tattoo, but I love this. No, tattoo. you don't have any? No, I have zero. <laughs> uh, we'll see, maybe because I'm scared. Probably. Scared of the pain. We're probably scared, but hey, you got to reinvent yourself, man. Come back with the tribal. And uh, that is not what I'm saying. I am not saying go get a face <laughs> tattoo to reinvent yourself. But Jay said to reinvent myself, so I got a tribal tattoo. Instead of saying I have the answer or I've succeeded, I think it's far more powerful to be able to say, I don't have all the answers, but I know how to figure it out. Cool. Right. And like when you're interview, you're told, like you're asked, 
what would you do in this scenario? In other words, what's the answer? Like if someone said like, Jay, should we launch a show? Hey, I'm in B2B marketing. Should we launch some kind of show, audio, video, or otherwise? Right. I would say like, well, I like the idea of more marketers doing shows, but here's all the variables I'm dealing with in my context that makes me say yes, right? Not least of which is I have a bias towards that because it's more ability for me to write about that, right? Or right. to teach it. And it's an example I hold up. But if you say, if I said, actually, Casey, I can't tell you, can I spend more time with you? Mm. Here's some questions you can ask yourself. Here's some like decision-making heuristics to say, okay, actually, yes, I should maybe experiment with a show. Like maybe that's more helpful. So right. it's far more powerful and more useful to be certain of nothing. And that's Anthony Bourdain's tattoo. I am certain of nothing. Wow. You know, I, in consulting, I, I've seen that time and time again, you're on some sales call and oftentimes we're called in to sort of be the voice of reason, sometimes truth. And, you know, Hey, can this platform do X, Y, and Z? Um, and almost, almost like the beginners and the newbies are, are going to try to answer it right now. Like, uh, yes, or, uh, no. And usually the answer gets you in trouble anyways. So the, the smarter answer is usually like, well, what are you trying to do? Or whatever that secondary question is, just, you know, a question replying to a question, you know? Yeah. It's here that, that we need to know the story of uh, a Grammy-nominated music educator named Kevin Mazzarella. Oh, cool. Uh, so Kevin works in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, in a town called Ledyard, or that's where he lives. He works in, in a nearby town, uh, which no one has ever heard of either, unless they're in that area. And so Kevin, like I said, is he's young. He's like in his mid-30s, and he's a Grammy-nominated uh, music education teacher. Wow. And he, so he teaches middle school band, and, and he works in you know, local gigs, and he's by far probably the most invested in his little area in what he does. He's a craft-driven creator. Cool. And Kevin decided very recently to take a position on the board of a very prestigious music school, uh, a little bit higher on the food chain, uh, or sorry, a little bit more um, uh, focused on like orchestra and classical music than most, okay. I think, probably experiment with when you're in middle school, right? Sure. Like you want to be in a rock band when you're in middle school. Right. So anyway, so they're prestigious and very traditional because they're very classical, very orchestra driven. And he's on the board and he's talking to them about marketing and he's getting questions because he's the young guy, like, should we be on Facebook? Right. right. How the hell can you answer that when you're the new guy in the room, mm. in the boardroom somewhere, should we be on Facebook? And he starts peppering them with questions. Well, who are we trying to reach? Mm -hmm. Who is yeah, uh, the biggest question that he encountered that nobody had the answer to, and it reveals this issue of constant acquisition mode and digging holes in dry sand. How will we know if this is working? In other words, what's our goal? Yeah. And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, we're talking about using social media and we're talking about trying to fill seats in the school, more students. So what's enough? What, what's a sign of working? Is it by the end of the year, we want five more students? And they were like, well, no, more. And he's like, okay, so is it 50? Is it 500 in inbound right. inquiries to apply to the school? Like, if we don't know exactly what we're trying to do like that, then the only answer is, I don't know, more, right? right. And that's what happens when we get into any growth-driven company when the goal is to acquire. How many leads? Well, right now, 40,000 a month, right? But next month, 50,000 and then 60,000. And then it's... <laughs> Freaking exhausting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. None of our work compounds. It always feels like it's resetting. Starting over every month. Yeah. Next so campaign. The cave 
or the, the, the walls caved in because we're digging holes in dry sand. Right. So there's a multitude of ways to try and get out of that. And Kevin was trying like crazy to get these very old school people to think not of their best idea mm-hmm. and why their cousin who works at an agency in New York City says Facebook is dead among young people. Like oh, these geez. are terrible reasons to do your work. Right. And instead he was trying to get them to set up a few anchors so they could find the framework, so they could figure out the lay of the land, where they're sailing to, and then launch little experiments. So we want 50 students by the end of the year. Okay, great. That's our anchor. So mm. should we use Facebook? I don't know. That's one of the tethers we're pulling off of this. Right. Yes, we need to see where it can lead us. How far out can we go and where in what direction, right? So if you have the framework, then everything becomes micro tests to break that framework. In other words, a system of consistent reinvention. I like that. So rather than just throwing out some idea to get shot down immediately by some cranky salty board member you're you're finding out where are the places there firm and fast and sometimes to your point they don't even know so you have to sort of coach them through okay so so where it where am i going to hit the the body part on operation you know where's the buzz going to happen so i know my 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 swim lanes here and then i can start doing some tethers like you were saying figured it did it work did he did he get some some leeway and do they fall in line or do they keep pushing back till to today even the beauty so the beauty of what happened with kevin and the old school board of that uh classical music organization or school was that they landed on a resource anchor which was we have very few people at the school we are a school we don't have a giant marketing team we have an agency who helped us with our website and the technical stuff and the branding and right. they're asking to pay if we could pay them more so they'll manage our social media and where they landed was they're going to start looking at instagram in particular hmm. find content writing a hashtag and they're going to start stewarding the hashtag so they're going to become curators of that yes. content instead of creators why because who is at the event parents and what are they doing they're holding up their phone filming or taking photos of their kid playing that music nice right? so one anchor is we want more students another anchor is we actually believe that the best way to get students here is to show them what we do that other schools do not instead of tell them we can show them it's music right. for crying out loud right and how do we show them well we can create a bunch of content yeah that's one way this tether can float but maybe we really start thinking about our constraints here we need to move in a different direction and say maybe the parents could be the ones capturing the content and we can just steward the hashtag and promote the hashtag back to them. So that's where they've landed. The last I checked in with Kev, they were moving forward with that. I love that. I love that. I love those stories. It's almost like watching one of those movies where something happens in high school and some crazy teacher like pushes against the odds. And then you you get that final scene at the end, like Mr. Holland's opus or something where they're just like, ah, you did it. You know, that's cool. It's cool to hear that that actually worked. Smart though. He definitely played it right. I could imagine him just throwing some rain. Oh, we should hop on Twitter. We should do Facebook. It, I, you don't even know. And then people are like, no, we can't do that. We're, we're not that way. But he took the time to invest in that. That's cool. Well, and here's the problem. If you're not willing to put down some anchors, in other words, you don't yeah. want to embrace any constraints, what ends up happening is you can blow in any which way the wind blows, right? And when you get in a room full of people who are sitting on a board, guess which way you're going? In the direction of the biggest blowhard in the room. Sure. Sure. I, right. Or in my head, I was thinking if you don't have any anchors, everything's an anchor. Like, you know, if you, if you can't put one or two down, like essentially everything's going to turn into it. And then you're, it's like a minefield. Right. Um, you know, and I by do, the way, if you say like we pick a mission statement for our brand and it's not resonating, it's okay. It's fine. You can change yeah. it. 
you can move on, right? Yeah. You can pull up anchor and explore a new section of that ocean. It's true. I like that. I like that stuff. We get in this mode where we think we have to decide in theory up front because this decision is final and will persist forever. Mm-hmm. And if you get out of theory and into reality, reality is a mess. Reality is ever changing. The only consistent effect and friction on every single person's work is that of time. So when right. time starts pressing up against what you're trying to do and morphs it and changes it and whatever, but you're thinking to yourself, well, the decision we're making today will apply forever. That's a fool's errand, right? Yeah. So if we don't have this willingness, I guess, to look reality in the eye, I, I, what you just said, I think hits home. It's like you start to, you just evolve into chaos, right? Everything right. is an anchor and nothing's an anchor. Everything's yeah. okay and nothing's okay. So pick the thing that feels right in theory and for no reason at all, just cling to that. 100%. We once, I was on an onsite talking to some people about you know, their ideal buyer profile. You know, we're trying to set up some grading and scoring and marketing automation. And it was like, oh, okay, what are some of the things that, you know, ideal things you're looking at for your customers? And they were like endpoints, computer endpoints, which means how many computers you have in your, in your company, in your office. And they really want to know because it tells them, probably how much money they're going to make. Uh, and so I said, okay, endpoints. Um, what's a great amount? They're like, you know, this wide variety. I'm like, okay, what's, what's, what's a too little? Like wh- when do you know, you know, is it under a hundred, not such a good deal, bigger enterprise? And they're like, no, well, we'd still call that. Oh, oh okay. Um, under 50, you know, you know the story. It kept going down. If I'm like, okay, guys, 10, not one, one would you would you call one and they go well you know they still like zero like well sometimes vc don't actually have computers but they have a bunch of I'm like oh okay i give up right there there's no there's no foot you know planting the the stake in the ground it was all just so flexible and they were they were having trouble because they couldn't target anything because they were just so willy-nilly there was a, a study out of the university of illinois that was trying to look at the effects of constraints on productivity and creativity and they decided to, uh, the way they were going to construct this experiment, I thought was delightful. Cool. They, they found a yard and they hid a bunch of carrots throughout the yard. <laughs> they sent different groups of kids into the yard on like a scavenger hunt for these carrots. And they made sure they had a control group, which was there was no fence, no barrier around the yard, right? So it was just like an open field as far as the eye could see. Wow. Go find the carrots. Then they put different size and shape fencing. And obviously, given this conversation, what I'm about to say is hopefully evident to people. Not yet. Maybe I'm dumb, but they keep going. I'm excited. The people with or the kids with different constraints found the carrots faster with mm-hmm. more. And the more important detail here is that they were more organized in how they searched for them, right? Because right? they were able to compartmentalize and start chunking things from chunking. everything goes yeah. to let's take it bits at a time. And they're children. They're not like sitting there first with like, okay, Sally's the leader and she's going to start documenting the framework and what's the best practice for finding carrots? Well, Bill, why don't you Google that on your smartphone, which your parents gave you? Like, lucky you. So like, yeah, that organized. They're, they're just kids running around a field looking for stuff, but the, the presence of a fence actually created more of a semblance of organization in them. True. So when we have certain constraints, and that's one study in a long line of studies, they all point to the same thing. When we have constraints, we come up with more ideas and more effective ideas. So yeah. quantity and quality together. And, but we fight and kick and scream, right? We don't want those constraints. We don't want any anchors. We don't want a framework. Like when I first started creating podcast stories, I was like, every story will be gut feel. And I birthed like 60 episodes into the world. And <laughs> I died. Like it was like, I broke my 
back because I had no system in place. What, what killed you? Sorry. What's that? Well, no, what killed you doing that? I because they're random. It, every single one started yeah. from scratch. Every single one didn't use what I'd learned. I just like hoped that if I do enough of these, and I still truly believe this is the way to get better at anything, put in the reps, right? right. I thought like if I do enough of these, I'll just get better. They'll get easier, right? But what was happening is I didn't know head, heads from tails. I didn't know like what was I changing episode to episode. I didn't know like, well, how do I open an episode? Should I focus on improving my intros, my conclusions to the episode, the subject I'm interviewing? Should I get better at interviewing skills or sound design? narration of the story like there were way too many moving parts and pieces right i hadn't found the framework so right. now what i've done is i've gone back to what i felt was my most successful episode like a turning point in how i felt about my own show sure and i just wrote down the framework and and that's what i use not only to copy and paste it across episodes but to to use it as a clear way to reinvent right so if right. i if i do make a decision that in b block i'm not going to do the usual I'm going to do something different. Mm. I'm A, changing a small thing, not the whole episode, and I can come out of it entering a standard C block. Or B, I have to make a case in my own head as to why the usual B block is not as effective, is not as creative, doesn't serve this particular story compared to the new experiment that I'm trying, right? Wow. So I'm able to like really start being proactive instead of like every single episode was just a reaction to like, what Casey sounded like and what my mood was like and how much time I, I was a mess. It right. was all gut feel. I was feeling around in the dark. Yeah. It's so interesting um, that, that you think, you think to hone that and you think to hack that in my head. I've just, I've like labeled you like the Tim Ferriss of podcasts. You know, you're like, you're like hacking the thing and finding the, you know, the, the differences and the frame. I think your awareness of the framework in general, I mean, I think even speaking personally, I just kind of like go with the fuzzies, but I do actually, I do have, I, I, I say that, but I do have a framework that people may not even realize behind the scenes and then some notes. And, and I don't know if people know I do a prep call, but like, I guess there is a framework, but, um, but a very loose one, <laughs> but, uh, but I love that you're constantly tweaking and thinking about the different changes that could happen. It's almost like you're, you're locked in a state of, of reinvention or maybe you're not locked in and maybe you're just intentionally doing it, but it's really interesting to, you know, to talk to you and, and hear from someone who's doing that. And it's kind of challenging because it's like, when was the last time I reinvented something around it? You know? So, uh, so Tony Stark from Marvel comics and Marvel movies yeah. is not a superhero, right? Tony Stark is a very wealthy, very charming, very, <laughs> you know, sarcastic and glib per human being, man, single person. Right. And if you sent Tony Stark into a battle with, Thanos and all these other super villains, <laughs> he would get walloped. Yeah, In fact, would. he would get walloped so badly that he would force people like me to say the word walloped because who actually yes. says that word, right? No, no one says that. No one. But that's how badly Tony Stark would get beaten if you sent yeah. him into the battle, right? Totally. But when he steps into his suit, he becomes a literal superhero. He becomes Iron Man, right? So yeah. what, I, what I think of creativity as, I think of you are who you are, your team, yeah. you have all this mess of stuff, right? Yeah. Can you build a vehicle and understand the parts and pieces of that vehicle in theory quickly and in 
Tony Stark lore. That's like what they call Mach 1. It's like the first suit of armor he built. Okay. Yep. The then, gray one, the clunky the, one in the cave. The clunky one, yeah. yeah. It got him far enough. It got him basically one trip in the air and then he crashed in. <laughs> yeah, rough go. But could you build a vehicle into which you could step to become greater than you are, right? Greater than the sum of your parts, greater than every individual on the team, greater than you plus the five teammates is you stepping into this vehicle. So I think right. of that as, can you learn the framework and the technique of writing? Can you learn the framework and the technique of creating a great podcast, whether it's an interview or a story, like a narration driven podcast like mine? Mm. Um, If you, that's what I do with clients, by the way, I say to them, and I actually use this analogy. I'm like, I am in the business of building you an Iron Man suit and I, I will build it to your specs and build it to make sure that this can fit you. And I will teach you all the things that I think this suit can do. And then you can step into it and be Iron Man or I, if you pay me a little bit extra, I can step in there <laughs> and host. Yeah. Show, yeah. Right. And I will host this vehicle and deliver it into the world. Um, and then what's amazing is just like with Tony Stark, people start finding that, Hey, you can actually through this combination of moves, do this new thing. Or actually if we tweaked this component part, now we can do that new thing. Right. right? And it's, so people get this idea that creativity is about complete open-endedness and Mm. complete messiness. And I actually think it's about being a professional. It's about showing up to do the work, no matter the constraints. And actually because of the constraints, you'd be more creative, right? Right. Whether it's a daily blog post or we have these many episodes or I have this goal or whatever, the budget, the team, the time. And so it's like, what can you do to build your Iron Man suit, so to speak? Yeah. And understand it enough that you can step into it and just start playing around. Because you will be so much more creative and so much more powerful if you know the framework first and then you break it versus what most people do is they're in break the framework mode before they know what the framework is. Right, before they even have one. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So here's my question. At this point, I'm... I mean, I've learned so much. Who are you? Where did did you come from? (laughs) What, what egg did you hatch out of somewhere? Like, did you get sent over from another planet and you crashed and you were raised by farmers or? It's funny you say that because my grandfather on my mom's side used to joke that my mom, that he found my mom in the backyard in a pea pod, (laughs) pod rather. And she, or a cabbage patch. Yeah. Yeah. She took that personally. Um, That is the lineage I come from. So no, you know, I, I grew up creating stuff and I still do that. Like my whole thing is I want to make things that make me feel something mm-hmm. and I want those things to make other people feel something. Like I, I'm so enamored in this, with this idea that business content does not mimic how we experience our work. Like we experience our work with lots of emotion and the full range of the human spectrum of feeling, right. Right? from fun and funny to sad and sappy and everything in between. Yeah. But business content does not mimic that, right? right. So there's a real opportunity to create things that are nutritious and delicious. Not, <laughs> yeah. not gimmicky. Not like I'm late. I'm not like eating hot wings and interviewing a business individual, right? Like power, <laughs> power to hot ones. That, well, that's like, that's a show called hot ones on YouTube. Is it really? But it's a show <laughs> on a YouTube channel called first we feast. It's about food. So oh, okay. food, it's yeah. about the intersection of food and pop culture. Guess what is not about the intersection of food and pop culture. Your marketing tech company. Right? right. So like you're doing a knockoff, a gimmick of hot ones. There are some people right. doing that. So anyways, like I'm not talking about making it more entertaining and more enjoyable using a gimmick. I'm talking about like telling stories, creating cool things, interesting things, resonant things, things that are built to resonate, not just reach, you know, yeah. that's what I'm all about. When you say that, you know, how boring 
most webinars are and why people even sign up for them anymore. I don't know. Um, well, it's, it's amazing what you can do with, again, a tiny reinvention. So I, um, I was lucky enough to work with a tech company called Divi HQ. They're a, a content marketing software company and they do a lot of webinars and it was proven to work, but they like people I'm talking to all year long had identified like, Hey, this is growing stale. Like they were, they had yeah. gone from Nirvana where everybody loved their webinars to this drop off of diminishing returns and then back up to, or, or, or back down to rather like where they started, which was like, we're getting okay results from our marketing. And right. so we worked together to reinvent the webinar and it wasn't about like overhauling everything. It was like, okay, we're not going to start with housekeeping. We're going to start with a story oh, and cool. we're going to produce a little bit of a, a video interview. So you're not going to see slides. You're going to see the humans talking. And when you see slides, it will be like an interstitial to supplement what you're seeing with the people talking, right? Or it'll be a clip of a video playing. And so like same medium, same marketing, same approach that they had. They didn't have to change a thing. Um, we also constructed it as a four-part series. So each one had a reason for existing in that order because uh, we were exploring one big idea. Right. And, and people loved it. Like I'd never seen people mm. write emails this long about how much they enjoyed a webinar. That's so cool, yeah. man. It, I love that. Love that. Okay. So even since you've been four, you've been like creating things that sort of inspire you and yeah. light you up. Yeah. I, I don't like this idea, like imposter syndrome and writer's block and all that stuff. I don't get that stuff because maybe I'm delusional. I think every person who creates stuff for a living to some degree is. Sure. But I also just want, I crave the moment of publishing. I crave the process of creation too much to, to care about like, well, then when it's, when it's out in the world, will it work or who cares? Will people care or critique? Like I don't, for me, the reward is I have this idea and I want it to exist. Like how cool is that? That this exists now? Cause I did it. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I love that. And, and that in a weird way helped me improve from an early age because I would consume my own work cause I would like make it. It's like, cooking yourself a meal. Nobody questions if there's an ego behind someone who cooks a great meal for themselves, but everybody questions if there's an ego or a misalignment of goals with the business. If you make content that you yourself think you, that you would love, right? Cause you're like, right. well, you're not, you're not the market and you know, we have goals to hit. Now, yeah. All that stuff is better served if you're bringing your full self to what you're making. Yeah. yeah. All of it. And then you yeah. consume the thing you create content in this case and it's like game tape to an athlete. You're like, oh, I can actually sense where I'm getting bored consuming my own thing. And so maybe, I can <laughs> right? And you find moments to reinvent that way by yeah. being an avid consumer, not fan, not blind. Like I love myself now. I'm patting myself on my back by like listening to this show. If you need that, take a moment, right? Right. <laughs> it's more like, huh, I'm letting this wash over me like somebody in my audience would. And I really didn't like how I ended that episode or that article or that ebook or whatever, right? right? Uh, that's a, it's like an exercise in empathy. And so I would do that as a young, as a kid, I would write cartoon strips, create little like, you know, drawings of like my pets come to life. I do little stories about like Sammy, the snake and all these different things. And nice, you know, then I wanted to be a sports journalist in school. So I would write about a human interest story about athletes. Um, I wrote my English literature thesis on the use of baseball in 20th century American literature. So I liked sports as a microcosm of life as humans of humans. And I like business as that too, because there's, it's rife for emotion and storytelling. And so I've just found different pockets throughout my life of, of doing that. And right now it's just squarely focused on, on B2B, on, on being a, a content marketer and serving other makers and marketers. 
That's cool. That's cool. How did that serve you in school? I mean, wanting to create things all the time. I mean, back to school being built for memorization and those kind of things. Was it just biding your time so you could get home? Or maybe maybe Sammy the Snake, you know, was created during some long, you know, Western Civ class or something. I liked school only because I was good at it. And wow. But I had students, or I had teachers rather, who uh, showed me the magic and, and helped me appreciate the world nice. for what it is, which is, should be a source of wonder and constant learning cool. uh, instead of like, give me the answer and then I'm out. So I did have teachers that helped me like in high school, uh, a guy by the name of Jack Shred would like perform Huckleberry Finn uh, wow. in the classroom. Like, and, and some people thought it was cheesy and I was just like, wow, like that's what writing can be. And even in the moments where he was, when I thought it was cheesy what he was doing and you know, it was a few in there for me, I would look at it and be like, he's affected by this. That's what writing did to him or this right. story did to him. Like, I'd like to do that. I'd like to find stuff that affects me like that. And I'd also like to make stuff that affects others like that. So having the ability to just sort of step back and be like, it's not about right and wrong answer and getting the grade. Even though I was good at that, it was about like, oh my gosh, the world is big and messy and reality is, it, you know, first of all, you only get to experience it once. So right. you like find a way to like constantly question your own assumptions because because everything here goes so much deeper and, th and that's really why i like the idea of exploring reinvention because it's not about like you're skating the surface here and it's going okay and right. then you add a gimmick so you can keep skating the surface in the next era or context that comes along or channel no it's about saying like this works let's go deeper with it we're not going to create more like it we're going to do more with it and i think you can do that with life you can yeah. do that with a job you can do that with a a show with a piece of content with an idea within that content like that to me is what mm. drives me it's like taking this thing that you're super excited about intrinsically that you're like i'm bringing my full self to that and then seeing how deep that goes and right. i think what happens is people come along for the ride in really powerful ways that oh by the way is really really good for business true true huh you know that the support of the teachers that kind of encourage this and man, I wish there were more of those. Cause I, you know, like that's a, that's a huge thing to have them challenge you. And, you know, and you mentioned the cheesy moment when they're doing their thing. And I remember I had some that like played guitar and, and whenever things are cheesy or cliche, they're usually true. And, and the cheesy things still get your attention, you know, and I think it's, it's it was probably authentically him too, you know? So it yeah. was cheesy, but it wasn't like he was doing it for the sake of getting laughs from the class. It was like, no, this is just me. I really am passionate about Huckleberry Finn. Let's go. It's about like your expectations weren't met. This is what spam is too. Like the same newsletter can be spam to one individual and welcome to the other. I think the difference mm. is, did you actually opt in? Or did you, did they scrape LinkedIn for emails or did they, email, did they email you <laughs> once <laughs> did they email you once, and you, you emailed them back and say, Hey, thanks for reading my book, Casey, appreciate your email. And then you added me to your newsletter. It's like, you're now spam. Cause I wasn't expecting to be on that newsletter. Right. right. And I think what marketing tends to devolve into is we're going to annoy the many to convert the few. Mm. And I think if you flip that on its head, that is the like barest bones version of marketing. It's, convert the few serve the few go deeper with the uh, few annoy the few and convert the many Hold their attention and you never have to annoy anybody in the world right like that's not what marketing's about and if you just care about acquisition 
and grabbing attention, eventually you tread very close to that third rail or even just dance on it, which says annoy a lot of people, DM everybody, spam people with like, look at the algorithm or whatever. Right. Right. Just focus on resonance, not reach, holding attention, not acquisition. You will grow. It's just, you have to start with honestly the most logical thing, which is just like, okay, so the first few, Nothing goes zero to 60. You have to hit every number along the way. So just, just start doing that way. This is not rocket science, right? I'm just hoping, hoping to codify this for people. Holding attention is the new marketing mandate. Hmm. This is, this is some epic stuff. And like, it makes me think and have to pause. And um, so you have a book and how did, how's that gone? I mean, it, it was, was it crazy to write it? And then what came out of that? I mean, for the, for the three people that have kept it listening, by the way, thank you. If you are, uh, yeah, I, I wrote, I wrote that book because my dad, Leanne shouts to Leanne. Um, shouts. I, I wrote that book because I wanted the book to exist. And also because I'd done enough sort of like, uh, aeration of the ideas and the stories through my podcast through and my podcast. Story. Yeah that I felt like, okay, th- this is now ready to exist. I felt like there was like a need for it and not okay. that it was like, it was so weird. When you create stuff, you keep these ideas in your head that are contradictory. I just wanted it to exist. And also I think it had to exist for other people, for certain people. Yeah. Um, and so the message of the book is that, you know, finding best practices is not the goal. We think it is, we make it the goal, but the real goal should be finding whatever works best for you. Mm. And we've never really been taught how to do that. So I wanted to write a book that helps people put a decision-making framework in place so that in their unique situation, they can figure out the best decision, especially when they're surrounded by too much information and way too much conventional thinking or, you know, trend hopping. Um, So it's called break the wheel for a reason because we get stuck in this cycle of, of best practices and conventional wisdom and new trends. And if we smash that to bits, I think we can move from all of that, which is, what works on average and start thinking about, well, what would it take us in our shoes here to be exceptional? Right. Break the wheel. I love it on Amazon. I actually, I have to go, I have to go snack. You have audible. Did you read it? I did the performance. Yeah. And you can hear my, how was it? How was that? If, does that work? If, if creating my podcast for three years and also like five or six client shows as the host was like me going to the gym for all those years, this was me being like, I'm now ready to try and jump directly to the NBA. <laughs> and cause you're doing, you're, I was like performing, I don't know, seven and a half hours of material in two days or something like that. Wow. And to me, it's a performance. It is a performance. So, yeah. and there's stuff in the material that I riffed on and just kind of added for the audio version. Oh, yeah. Nice. Text. Yeah. I tried to make it uniquely suited for audio. And uh, instead of what most people do, which is they just read the transcript. Um, but you've not, you've not written that book to be spoken. You've written it to be read silently. So I, I wanted to respect the difference and respect the medium. So did you write your book then to be read, you think? And then the spoken was a little different or? I, I take, I, I am very lucky. My writing style sounds like my voice. Okay. Like I write, like I speak, which I think is just what you're that, That's how about. I am too. Yeah. yeah. Um, the writing seems less literary but it is more communication right yeah but i over the years i've noticed there's a lot of differences between writing for audio and writing for text and this is a book that's been written for text so if i noticed a sentence was going on too long or if i had some kind of reaction to a funny moment uh in my book 
that read one way and I performed it and it sounded cheesy, I would just redo it. I would just be like, okay, what does this sound like if I state it out loud versus if I wrote it and you're reading like what you think is my voice versus my actual voice speaking to you. Um, so there's a lot of really fun nuances that I've found between audio and, and text. And I tried to incorporate that in that. Uh, incred- I, I sprinted a marathon is what I did, right? Wow. So maybe it was the MBA, maybe it was a marathon. How I many hours was it? I said seven and a half because I saw that number somewhere. It might okay. be less, it might be more, but I, it was a long, like. I just bought it too. Thank you. <laughs> it, it was a long weekend of me like all, drinking all lots of weekend? Did you do it yourself or going to a studio somewhere? Or how well, did... I mean, I record audio uh, for a living, right? True. So I have, I have a setup in my office, which the okay. people on the video are, are in my home office, but I was in right. my, my actual office um, to record that. Sick. Yeah, I'm going to totally, totally download this, man. I love, I love Audible for some reason. It's just yeah, listening. I mean, some people prefer to read, some people prefer to listen. And I bet that was a wild adventure to see some of those sentences you'd written and had edited and edited. And finally, you say them out loud on recording and it's like man so but yeah i know we're uh run up out of time here um but this has been great man hey what are some of the ways that people can connect with you so i'm trying to take everything i've talked to you about today especially with the idea of holding attention and making shows and put it yeah. into a monthly newsletter and so yeah. that that just launched or will launch by the, by the time this goes out it'll be live but uh it's on unthinkable media dot com slash subscribe okay. or just go to unthinkablemedia.com and hit the subscribe button. Um, but I, I'm trying to help marketers embrace and also master this art of reinvention through the vehicle of a show. I, I'd love right. to help advance the craft and creativity of, of marketers making shows. Yeah, I love that, man. That's so good. Thanks. Well, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. This is an awesome so conversation. Wild. I could Thank talk you. to you for hours, man. This is great stuff. Thanks. Philosopher King, myth legend. Jay, thanks again. Appreciate it. All right, everyone else out there, share this if you learned something. I know you did because I've got like notes out the wazoo over here. And uh, so get this in someone else's hands so they can kind of learn from this as well. And for everyone else out there, it's been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll see you all next time.